Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 92 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching and joining me today is Samantha Rocky. Samantha is an Associate Fellow at the Said Business School at the University of Oxford and is also a member of the faculty on the Oxford Strategic Leadership Programme, which is regarded as one of the leading open leadership development programmes in the world. She spent most of her career in the arena of leadership and organisational development and has won heaps of awards and has been written about in loads of books and publications. And she's also which brings her to this show. She is also the co-author, along with Professor Robin Dunbar and Tracy Camilleri, of The Social Brain, The Psychology of Successful Groups. I've been reading this book over the past few weeks, and I cannot wait to dig into the contents of that book with one of the authors right now. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Dan. I'm really excited to be here. I've just finished the book, uh, The Social Brain, and we're absolutely going to be um, digging into that. But before we get into um, the, the, the ideas that are covered off in, in the book there, I'm always interested in the journey that people take in order to end up writing a book. Um, it's often, you know, some people, it's all they've wanted to do. Others kind of fall into it by chance. Um, and I'm always interested to hear an author's story. So just to bring our listeners into the picture about who you are and your, your journey and, and how it became that, you know, you, you're, you're co-authoring a, a book with uh, Robin Dunbar and Tracy Camilleri. Um, yeah, tell us the Sam Rocky story. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, I think, Dan, I've worked for really two big organisations. Um, the first one I worked for was um, the post, the first post-apartheid government in South Africa. So I joined in 95, which is um, the, the moment actually where, where the whole government structure was changing, as you can imagine, and it was a very exciting time in South Africa. Um, and I came in as a policy person, so I had done development planning as a degree and had come in to think about policy and changes in policy. But what really struck me, almost from the get-go actually, was what was happening behind the scenes. So, you know, the really human side of getting things done. Um, and I was really curious about why that intrigued me so much because whilst policy was interesting, obviously all the steps that led to anything happening really had a human dimension to it that was that was inescapable. Um, and then the second big organization I joined actually in 1999. So I was really in the government for the Nelson Mandela years. And then I left to join a company called SAB in South Africa. And over the 15 years or 16 years that I was there, um, we, we moved from being a really local organization to being in the FTSE top 10. Um, we were the second biggest brewing company in the world. Um, and as you can imagine, the scale of growth during that period of time was enormous. And once again, what was fascinating was really around what was happening in these groups to make this happen. So I had started as a SAP consultant or a SAP advisor and then once again realized actually the people side was was really more interesting to me. Um, and I was lucky enough in that experience to really have worked across a range of uh, uh, countries and different groups and always seeking out what was making some groups really successful, what was really happening, and then with other groups less so. So what, what was the kind of secret sauce? Um, and then after the acquisition of 
Sabmiller by ABM Bev. Um, I then began a company with Tracy Camilleri, who's our co-author and who'd spent many, many years of her career in um, really at Oxford side business school, but primarily focusing on leadership development. Um, and we were lucky enough, actually, I was lucky enough, Tracy had already met him, to meet Professor Robin Dunbar at at Oxford University. And I think at that moment, both of us kind of converged around this idea that there's something really quite magical about successful groups and something really interesting about groups that just never managed to achieve what they'd set out to achieve. And I think once we'd really understood um, Robin's research, which of course has also spanned decades, there are some absolutely fundamental tenets of successful groups. And we saw the three of us came together from really three very different perspectives and thought, actually, what are the things that make groups work? And what are the things that don't make groups work? And we came at it from two perspectives. Robin obviously looks and researches what has, hasn't changed in, in our kind of uh, evolutionary history. And Tracy and I are always working with leaders around how things can change, how we can make things better. And of course, in the Venn diagram of these two kind of areas, there's a brilliant overlap, which has been, which is what we write about in our book. I'm curious, you've been quite deliberate there about using the word groups as opposed to teams, I think. And I'm just interested to hear, um, is that conscious? And particularly, and if so, um, how do you differentiate between groups, successful groups versus successful teams? Um, well, I think we are very deliberate about using the word groups um, because the book is intended to be a, really for anyone who's part of a group. And um, so if you're part of a community group, for example, you might not see yourself as a member of a team, so to speak, because we have a very rigid understanding of what a team does. But groups are highly effective and sometimes they can be quite fluid. People can come in and out. Um, and groups, I think, really do convey a sense of when we're together with other people. And we have a sense of what needs to be done. Um, sometimes the word team is just not the right word to use. So, so yeah, so I think the word group for us felt kind of encompassing beyond the sort of worky word of team. Um, yeah. But they are, of course, interchangeable in many instances. Um, mm. We just see it as having a sort of broader expanse. You mentioned there uh, Professor Dunbar's research, uh, Robin Dunbar's research, which has, as you say, spanned decades. But for the benefit of... Um, listeners perhaps who haven't come across it at all or perhaps only have a cursory sort of awareness or knowledge of uh, the Dunbar number which as soon as I say that probably it's probably setting a light off uh, somewhere in, in in people's minds um can you talk a little bit about just you know the, the I don't know whatever the short version of uh, Robin's work would be but if, if yeah, I'll throw it to you that challenge um the the, the quick pricey of uh, Robin's work talking about optimal numbers and there is some fascinating, I think, some fascinating kind of nuances in and around that, um, which, as we'll talk about, in, I guess, in our conversation here, like when we can start understanding those nuances, it really does put us in a better position to, yeah, help curate, uh, if that's the right word, or, or nurture successful groups. So, yeah, quick, first of all, the quick pricey on, on Robin's research. Sure. You are going to get the quick pricey from me because I'm, I'm a practitioner and not a scientist. Um, so really quickly, the 150 is really the sort of stable number of relationships that any one person can have. And this is connected to the size of our neocortex. So we simply can't have multiples of relationships um, because – we can't hold that all in our head at 
the same time. So the 150 is considered the Dunbar number. It's a stable number. It comes up repeatedly in many different formats. Um, we use lots of examples in our book, for example, the size of villages, size of church congregations, military groups. Um, it, it repeats itself endlessly. And what's really interesting about the 150 is that in a group of 150, you can really be known. But bigger than that, things start to fray around the edges. And someone coined it. It's after the 150, things start, strange things start to happen. Um, we think about it as a sort of the moment in which if you step outside or you have more than 150 relationships because you can't know or really sort of understand people, you know, you, don't, you just don't have the capacity to know more than, really know more than 150 people. Um, a lot of the sort of um, projections, if you're a leader and you're leading a group of more than 150 people, people are projecting their hopes and fears on you. They, um, you, you really can't be known. And I think in all our work, this idea of being known and seen is so critical. Um, Schumacher actually is one of the people we quote in our book. He's an economist who looks at uh, group size and scale. And he talks about the fact that in large organizations, really what we're trying to do is create a sense of smallness within the large. And I think what Dunbar num Dunbar's number does is put the science behind that. Intuitively, we might know that, but of course the science backs up the common sense. Um, but there's more aspects to the Dunbar graph. So, for example, um, the research shows that, you know, the quality of our fives. So we we mm. all have, you know, the, the idea that you have an intimate group of five, about five people. You know, the yeah. quality of those relationships determine how we live our life, really, and mm. the kind of our, our well-being. The 15, which is our good friendship group, um, can move in and out. We, we Those 15 are not stable. They include our five, by the way, which is a very stable group of people and includes our family, would include our family and our intimate partners. But the but the 15 is a, a kind of a number that flexes, but having we all have those patterns of trusted relationships. And interestingly enough, they tend to come in three. There's a kind of pattern of three. So five yeah. to 15 to 50 to 150. Yeah. And and one of the things that um, sort of struck me in the book was this the, the idea of and forgive me if I'm misinterpreting it but the idea that in order for groups to be successful we need to allow people to uh, cross those boundaries so to speak or or move um, not move freely necessarily but to be able to accommodate different spots is that is that fair to say. Yeah, I think the it was so interesting. I actually um, did a talk on the social brain in South Africa last week, and I made the comment that, you know, if we have a big family, for example, they're often incorporated in this 15 group, which means that it's difficult to have friends. And a few people came up to me afterwards. One person came up to me and said, she spent her whole, she comes from a very large family. She's got a sort of eight siblings. And she said, I've spent my whole life wondering why I don't have close friends. And she said, for the first time, I realized that actually it's because my family occupies all of that space. Mm. And I think that is really interesting. So the 15 is, is movable. People come in and out. Um, we, we kind of move away from friendship groups that have, you know, we had in the past and introduce new people. But I certainly think if you've got a big family, 
that's that would mean that would keep in that um in that 15 and the five but um yes it, we you know that same pattern is replicated at work so we have that same dynamic at work and we spend about 60% of our social time with 15 people and about 40% with the, the five. So who you spend your time with is really significant in terms of both your sense of well-being and really your 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 quality, actually, of, of life in some sense. And and I guess just trying to round out that that those numbers with the um – with with robin's science what what he's suggesting or, or his research is suggesting is it's the size of the brain that we, we simply don't have the capacity to authentically engage with more than those numbers is that so so if if the the colleague you were talking about in south africa saying you know i've got 15 family members for argument's yeah. sake taking up that literal brain space yes um then there is no more space for me to devote the energy, the psychological resources to form friends. Is that is that just to be clear, is that I, what we're saying? Yes, I think and then there's another factor at play, of course, is just how much time we have in our day. Yeah. I mean, yeah. those two things coming together really do set the tone for how many meaningful relationships we can have. And the one fifty is seen as the the number of 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 meaningful stable relationships we can have. The other interesting thing about the 150, which Robin often talks about, is that's how information flows very easily between a group of 150. But once it gets mm. bigger than that, um, things start to disintegrate. So there's something about how quickly information can flow around a group of that size as well. Mm. So I think it's very exciting in the world of organization, actually, to, to be much more deliberate about the size of organizations. And Conversely, to also think about how at work one might be captured by a, a group of a small group of people and really only listen to what they're saying because they're trusted. Um, it's cognitively easier to have conversations with fewer people or relationships with fewer people. Um, and also it's kind of you create an echo chamber. And we see that with many senior people, actually. They end up with two or three trusted advisors that they turn to for advice. Um, and this, of course, limits the possibilities because they're held into the state, um, into this echo chamber in a sense of their own making. So we often encourage senior leaders to step outside of that and to forcibly <laughs> create new relationships. But it does mean, Dan, then that somebody has to go because we are swap. It's a kind of exercise of swapping people in and out, which can be difficult. Humans, I don't think, are very good at breaking up. With people no. so it's a difficult conversation to have to say at this moment i need to introduce somebody new into this group yeah and and if we keep on the because it's a completely different podcast if we start talking about family and how and homes i would suggest but, but, <laughs> yes. but if we if we stick if we stick with the work sense because it's just something that came to mind for me there was and this is purely speculation and it's a theory, but I would imagine that the higher the stakes, so to speak, of the people that are leading it, the probably more inclined they are to keep people Absolutely. really tight. You know, and, and when yeah. when if the you know where perhaps the higher the stakes, we need to be able to broaden our thinking so we are getting that diversity of opinion, technique, or whatever whatever we need to insert into there. 
Yeah, I think that's such a brilliant summary because that's exactly, I think, what happens. Um, and we've we've interviewed and spoken with many, many senior people and CEOs and so on. And yeah, I, I think um, to quote Margaret Heffernan, who has written some brilliant books, um, one in particular called Uncharted, she describes ideas coming from the edge. They don't come from the center. So if you are speaking as a senior leader to a really small group of people, of course, what's happening at the edge, you're kind of not not really factoring in. So there's a real danger point, And it's exactly what you're describing, is it feels really important to be surrounded by very trust, trusted people. Of course it does, because we crave the safety of that. But at the same time, who knows what's going on sort of outside of the broader, um, broader piece. So there's a real tension to that. And I think the, the elegance is being able to do both those things is to know and have someone in your inner circle who can really be very supportive and very trustworthy and very truthful, which is why Shakespeare always had somebody in, you know, somebody who played the Joker, which was a, a, a mechanism really for telling the person in power the truth. But then at the yeah. same time to make sure that there's enough of, you know, enough relationships outside of that that are generative slightly disruptive and bringing ideas from from the outside there's a real elegance in getting that right actually yeah i think roman emperors used to have a memento mori someone who would just sit there and, re and remind yeah. them that they're mortal and they could <laughs> die so you yeah. know don't don't get don't get swept up in your own grandeur you know <laughs> i know we all need we definitely all need somebody like that in our lives absolutely and work even more so yeah, but but arguably people because I reckon we've all got those people. They're just they've just been self appointed. <laughs> Do yeah. you know what I mean? So, they're just, so sometimes I, yeah, but having that trusted one, that one where yeah, we can we're deliberate about asking people to play that role. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's probably a sign of a really evolved leader, I would imagine. Um, Absolutely, and, and actually, what's really yeah. interesting is that when we come across the kind of relationship between a CEO and a chief HR officer, for example, where the HR officer plays that role because they they have um, they have a, an agenda which is focused on the resilience of the organisation and making sure that the organisation actually does kind of do what it says it's going to do, et cetera, et cetera, is that we've seen those those relationships as being incredibly productive and generative. But it takes a special sort of person not to get sucked into the into the power dynamic. Just before we um, sort of jump into um, some of the, the principles, I guess that we can um, apply Dunbar's um, thinking to, and, and and your experience and whatnot. Just there's something in the book that talks about the. So it's not just a case of just you know up until one fifty everything's great. It's it, it seems to be that there are moments where a group will become a certain size and it can become unstable. So it has to actually break off. Like yes. There's, and, and I'm curious about just, yeah, some of the um, fragility, I guess, of, of, of when groups get, they start to get too big, but, the, and they don't, um, what would be the same? They, they don't split in time. I think yeah. the book the book spoke about the idea of fission. You know, they don't um, they don't break off and form new daughter groups or sister groups. Yes. Um, what are some of the yeah? What are some of the, um, the 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 issues that rise there? Well, I think I mean, and maybe I can and quote somebody called W. L. Gore, who um, was the founder along with his wife of 
Gore and Associates, which I mean, Gore-Tex is their, they're one of the most innovative companies in the world. And he recognized, having worked for a very large organization prior to that, that there was something really quite worrying that happened when organizations got too big. So when he set up Gore, he did it in, you know, group sizes of 150 and then deliberately set up another plant once it got to 150, then recreated another plant. So it never, you know, these these um, his organization never got to a stage where um, it didn't break at the right moment. And arguably, that is the success of those sorts of organizations. Mars is another organization like that. We, we talk about Mars in our book, where the, the kind of corporate headquarters always kept within the size limit. And that may have been done intuitively, but we see very effective organizations absolutely recognize this moment of needing to break into the next 150 or whatever it is to make sure that all the dysfunctions that come with having too much scale um, don't don't affect the organization. Dan, just to say, we are not recommending that organizations only stick to 150 and after that they have to stop any form of growth. They're absolutely not. But we see it as a kind of ripple effect, this idea of a kind of pebble in the middle of a pond and what you're creating are lots of sort of 150s but with a strong center of the organizational purpose and values, but allowing people to really be seen within a community of people so that you don't have this sort of loneliness epidemic at the edges. You don't have a sense of people not feeling connected to the organization. Um, you don't have a sense of people feeling a, a kind of um, sense of anomie to quote Durkheim. Um, so it's really important actually that organizations are thoughtful about org design. Um, and of course, Agile does this brilliantly, you know, organizations that have implemented Agile do that, understand the power of the small group within within the um, within the organization. So let's talk a little bit then about, you know, a bit more localized um, considerations, because a lot of people listening to this podcast perhaps aren't in the position where they can decide when we're going to open a new plant because we're reaching 150 or whatever, but they absolutely... Um, have ownership of the group that they're you know or part ownership of the group that they're um leading and or or a part part of and i wanted to um talk a bit about you know belonging and trust and bonding and like listeners to the podcast remember we've had um the likes of owen eastwood on the on the podcast we've had um kim samuel on the podcast quite recently talking about her work in and around belonging and i know that you know, people who have resonated with that work will certainly be already switched on to the kind of things you're talking about. How, this is a, a, an obvious, but probably not obvious question, but how important is belonging, trust, and a sense of bond between people? And how is that, in your experience, in your work, because you've written this post-COVID, how has that either been accentuated or just highlighted it's just now more obvious to people than it was pre-pandemic um yeah how, how, do, how do you reconcile that I, I know it's important I, I know it's a central pillar of your work but I'm curious just to hear how you articulate that and and um yeah explore it with people yeah I mean that is such a that's such a brilliant question because I think everyone is grappling with this idea of what work what the new world of work needs to look like and I think 
if I was to put sort of my a kind of real focus for groups and organizations is that the idea of belonging is absolutely critical to every single person at work, but even more so for young people coming into work. Um, you know, we often think, we, we forget that we that work has multiple generations and anyone who's not a Gen Z has had really a fuller experience of work because they went into an office, they were part of a team most likely, there were rituals and practices at work that gave them a sense of, of the organizational culture or the team culture. Um, and there was a kind of work pattern. And I was, we've actually done a bit of um, Gen Z research, but I was speaking to somebody about work and they were kind of reflecting on the fact that the notion of work is unclear to them, actually, because all of the tenets that we were so used to, and I'm speaking as somebody who worked in organizations in a sort of arguably nine to five scenario for most of my career, is that I got all the benefits of working with colleagues, learning from my elders, um, when I became one of the elders, you know, teaching, whatever it was. But we had that dynamic exchange at work. And our young people don't have that, really. Um, and I think there's something incredibly important, and it, it can be done virtually, but it's much more difficult, is creating these structures of belonging. And Owen Eastwood, who we've worked with before, and I absolutely love his work. He describes what these rituals are, in, you know, with such richness, but it requires us to design them in, but also to do them face to face and in person. I just don't know how you can replicate that feeling of being with others, um, always being online. I just think it's really, it's really impossible. So I think we, Belonging, I would say, arguably, is one of the most critical aspects of successful organizations, the sense of being connected to something and also to be really seen. I keep coming back to that idea, Dan, is that we need to be seen to thrive. And you can only really be fully seen if you feel like you belong to something. So, yeah, I think this is a big question facing us from a work perspective. And do you think specifically because covid has accentuated it or because it, or or you know it puts some when you're talking about gen z or, or um are you suggesting that they haven't had the same experience because they well you know let's i'm going to throw some huge generalizations but they've gr they've grown up you know on their smartphones they've grown up being super connected to thousands of people but not perhaps connected in the same authentic way to their families or community they've gone into a workplace which is increasingly anywhere anytime and then yeah. covid hits and they're ripped out of any semblance of that to a fully online world and now we're asking them perhaps well some some organizations are asking them to come back other organizations are saying oh we've worked out we can work a lot cheaper this way so we'll yeah. keep you at home um yeah it's it, it, it seems like there's just this huge melting pot of, of and are you, I guess my point is, are you saying that Gen Z or Gen Z have been more impacted or are more susceptible to that than, say, us? You know, we're of similar vintage, I would guess, looking at, you know, here and, and, and yeah. people between, between us. Is, is that what we're saying? And it's hard for us to understand them and vice versa? Um, I think definitely we've had the benefit of, being in workplaces that are predictable 
in their structure. Coming into work, doing our thing, connecting with teams, making friends, um, and we can speak about that a bit later, why having friendships at work, I believe, is so absolutely critical. Um, but our young people haven't really had that. The pattern is unclear for them. They haven't got the benefits. And, and all the research seems to point to the fact that young people really relish having being more social. I mean, let's just name it. Not everybody, of course. There are some people who prefer, who love working from home. And I think that's why one needs to be flexible. But there are a lot of people who make their best friends at work. I've got friends that I made, you know, 30 years starting in my career, as I'm sure you do. And most listeners on this call will really recognize how wonderful work is when you're working with like-minded people and having a laugh and getting things done. But that really does benefit from doing it face-to-face. Um, a team's meeting has never made me feel as joyful as just being, you know, being with one's colleagues and just laughing at the, the ridiculousness of what one is doing. So I think our young people are really missing out on that. And I think um, it's, it's up to organizations to be thoughtful about that, actually, what is needed. Um, yeah. So I do think there is a different work experience and it's probably in some instances, less joyful. I'm saying that obviously with a massive caveat to say that there will be many people who disagree with that and actually think mm. it's wonderful that we can have teams from all over the world and it doesn't matter where you're located. Of course, there are those benefits as well. But I think on the whole, collectively, there's enough loneliness in the world and a sense of being disconnected for our young people that perhaps the workplace is a, is a, is, is a haven for connection and meaning and coming together. Mm. I think it's fascinating like we there's just been a survey released um in australia and they they've set um they follow like seventeen thousand people and they, they, they sort of survey the same people over and over and what they found there is yeah people are reporting a sense of loneliness and particularly the younger people mm. um you know 20 20 odd you know age group um yeah like loneliness and and uh, and I can't recall it off the top of my head, but I know that there's many other um, studies which are looking at that and recognising that loneliness appears to be on the uptick despite <laughs> despite the fact that you know there's more people in the world than ever. There's more connection to use yeah. it, in, you know, in a superficial sense than ever. But that real deep, authentic connection to people and to community and perhaps to purpose that seems to be seems to be lacking I find it interesting that you, you position work as perhaps you know perhaps that's the place where it could happen um you know because I'm, I'm I'm thinking of one particular person we work with they've got a you know they, they, they run a sizable chunk of the organization in the Asia Pacific here and um one of their big things has been people won't come back to the office yeah because they're saying we don't want to and I'm as I'm sort of thinking of, I'm wondering, do they actually know that? <laughs> do yeah. they know, or are they, or are they privileging convenience over connection? Yeah, you know, you know what I mean. Like it's easier for, of course, it's easier for me to stay at home, and in the moment, it feels like far better for me to not have to battle the traffic or battle public transport. Yeah, I'm just. It's almost like they don't. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just riffing here. But. <laughs> Well, Robin was interviewed for the New Scientist just last week, actually, and he does describe in, in his article just why it's so important. This experiment was done in the 1990s, actually, where people already, for the first time, started thinking about a kind of 
more of a work from home opportunity. And of course, it's great if you live in a nice home and you've got the space to do that and you've built your connections. This is really important. You've got your connections. You've made them already. You don't need to, you know, for the older generations, all of that is settled. But when you're young, who do you turn to? Um, in this talk that I gave last week, I had a young person coming up to me and asked me, how do I make friends? Not how do I make friends at work? How do I make friends? Full stop. Wow. And I think this is huge. The chief medical officer in the USA um, recently said that there's a vein of loneliness running through the US that is filled with despair. I'm not quoting him directly, um, but I'm paraphrasing. And I think it's absolutely true. So where do we find places for people to connect? Um, and we've just looked at the rise of social sports, paddle, pickleball. I don't know what's happening in Australia, but certainly Park runs. Park UK. runs are a big thing. Exactly. Yeah. But these tick yeah. so many boxes. And the social sports like paddle, it's for people. It's intimate. It's coming together. It's mixed gender, which is really interesting from a sports perspective. It's a low barrier to entry. Um, and it's very social. And there's a reason that these trends are happening because people are seeking out opportunities to connect with other people. You're talking to a former PE teacher, so uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a wholeheartedly a fan of social sports. It's, yes, um, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful vehicle for everything we're talking about. Um, okay, so you brought this in before. So let, let's 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 build our case, right? So not only are we saying that um, you know work could be um, a catalyst. And, and quite a deliberate catalyst, like actually perhaps not leaving it to chance whether people come back and um, you know form better connections. But let, let's say we've got leaders listening who are keen to authentically uh, create environments where that, that happens. And you use the phrase like, <coughs> excuse me, and you use that phrase, you know, having friendships at work. I've, I've heard many people, many, many people tell me they're not interested in friends at work they're just there to do a job mm. I'm on the other side of that argument I'm saying okay I, I'm not saying you have to make friends and you're not being paid to make friends but geez it'd make things you know ultimately probably better from a certainly from a personal perspective and if we get it right probably from a professional perspective as well so yeah, let's hear your case because I'm keen to hear it. I've, um, what's your case for friendships at work? And I appreciate it's not just going to be your opinion because there's plenty of research that backs you up, but I'm keen to hear it. And then I'd love to actually uh, talk a little bit about how we can be deliberate in, in, in helping this along. Well, I'm a strong um, advocate for friendships at work, unsurprisingly, um, because I know that when we have somebody at work that we feel a sense of trust and connection with, it certainly makes things easier and let's, and more enjoyable for sure. Um, but Gallup has the longest, um, you know, they've done that research and they, they probably have the longest kind of range of research around the importance of friendship at work. One of their questions is, do you have a best friend at work? Um, and certainly they've shown when people have a friend at work, I mean, the use of the word best friend is really interesting as well um, because best friend implies they're your best friend in life. But actually, in this context, it's, it's at work. Um, and discretionary effort and performance is improved when, there's a friend, when you have a friend at work. And Gallup has got years and years of research to show that to be true. 
So I think there's something really powerful, actually, in terms of organizational performance is giving people opportunities to connect with others. It takes about 200 hours to build a friendship. And that's why many people's friends actually come from times in their life where they had a lot of time on their hands. Um, university friendships are a, a good example where people could lounge around and just talk for hours. So most people you saw, can reflect- you saw me at university. <laughs> you saw me at university just lounging around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if you still have those friends, Dan, there's a reason for that is that you created yeah, the time and space. Yeah. 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 Created the time and space to build those friendships. So um, I'm not saying people should lounge around at work at all, but I think there are opportunities at work that we can help people have deeper and more meaningful conversations. And these are very, these are things that are not difficult to do. So one of the things that we know is a shortcut to uh, connection is synchrony. Robin talks a lot in much of his research focuses on the power of synchrony. So this is walking together. Um, we we talk about workshops rather than workshops. When you send two people out on a walk, um, they have a much different conversation. They're side by side rather than eye to eye. And that allows for a kind of um, more expansive conversation. Um, that's a simple technique. And we can, and interesting questions. We always try and ask questions that are not directly work related. I did an exercise recently where I asked people to get into groups of um, the kinds of movies that they love. It sounds really trite, but actually when you had all the people who love rom-com in the same group together, it was a completely mixed group and people didn't fall into the same patterns that they might have at work. So we had the mix of the accountants and the marketing people, you know, the rom-com lovers. It sounds such a simple thing, but it allows you to see someone through a completely different lens. Um, so synchrony and, of course, singing together. Um, Robin is a huge proponent of singing together, as are we. Not that I'm a singer myself, but choirs. Um, that is one of the most effective ways of creating a sense of connection and bonding. So there are lots of things that organizations can do to fast track these moments of connection. And they don't take a lot of time. The irony of all of what we're talking about today is that what feels inefficient is actually deeply efficient. We mistake technical focus for efficiency. But in fact, just doing something as simple as a team check-in in, in the morning gives people a sense of well-being and being heard. Um, but I think organizations get caught up in a kind of linear process approach that doesn't really factor in the fact that we're all humans and we are, in a sense, designed to work in small groups together. Mm. So that's so my pun for saying, friendship. Yeah, no. So when you, I like it. Good pun. Uh, so when you when you're saying um, th they think it's not efficient, am I right in saying, so, or or am I hearing you right? So if we get together for, for uh, let's say, ten minute check in, then the the benefit of that will be felt throughout the day in the work in the way the work's done. Yeah. So at the end of the day, and I'm obviously just using that as a nominal time frame, but let's say the end of the day, we will have been more productive. We'd have expended more discretionary effort on things. We may have had more creativity, et cetera, et cetera. Helped out a colleague without needing to, whatever it might be. Had we, whereas if we'd not had the check in, we we probably would have just gone about our job. We'd have ticked the boxes, 
And so we see the boxes ticked and think, oh, that's heaps efficient, but actually we've missed the whatever else has, could have happened. Is it, Am I hearing that right? I think you're hearing it absolutely right. I mean, a very simple example is I used to work with someone who had an, an incredibly sort of grumpy face, if I can put it like that, that it, it just wasn't, it just didn't convey a sense of joy and happiness. And um, it was, you know, if you are, if you meeting somebody, you, you people are, we interpreting each other's faces all the time. Um, but, you know, in this instance, a check-in completely takes that kind of unknown quality away. It's like, I'm having a really good day or I'm having a fantastic day. And with this person in particular, you know, it just takes one check-in to say, I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm a bit worried about whatever's going on. And instantly the empathy of the group t- kicks in as well. It's like, oh my goodness, we can really understand what's happening for this person. That's a that's a 10 minute exercise. That's what, um, you know, Amy Ad- Edmondson talks about in psychological safety. It's, you know, what we see is just because we see it doesn't mean it's reality. We need to hear from others about what they're experiencing. And I always use this example because in this particular um, case, I was always so worried about what was going on. I didn't know until we instituted this idea of actually checking in and really getting to know what was going on. So, yeah, the efficiency is not so efficient. It's the inefficiencies that actually result in longer term effectiveness. I mean, I, I kind of love that. So, you know, we one of the very practical examples, Dan, is that when people have difficult meetings, um, you used to have your dinner or, or get together after the difficult meeting. But actually, in our research, we have the diffi- we have the dinner the night before. Because when you're mm. breaking bread with someone for about 20 to 30 minutes, you have an endorphin release, which gives you create a sense of well-being with the people that you're with. And that well-being tends to last the next day as well. You give them slightly more benefit of the doubt. Because you're probably also engaging with them on stuff which isn't the subject of the difficult conversation. So pro- my guess would be that you're, you're starting to see them more as a person rather than a problem. Exactly. And I think that that Perhaps. is so brilliantly put. Yeah, exactly. I really like that sort of idea is, is until we see each other or are seen, we mm. are projecting on other people. And it's the projection that is the danger. So how we can short circuit that, I think, is the role of of leaders. And then you asked about people being part of groups. It's the role of those people in groups as well to encourage that behavior. Do you have any ideas about how to bring the notorious arm folder or the person who's just not just not going to play? You know, like if you're saying, right, we're going to sing or we're going to go for a walk or or whatever how how have you found it do, do you just assume, hope that the pull of the crowd will bring them along or is there like uh, i'm curious to know if you've got like a a, a good little zinger <laughs> or, or good or something that can can help them shift that lens because i can imagine not everybody who hears your thoughts on this would immediately subscribe to them Oh, I, I think that's absolutely right. And of course, there's an absolute shadow side to being human as well, which we can talk about. And, you know, the dangers of all of the stuff that we talk about, like what are the thresholds? We we need we need to keep things in continuous play, but overextending or underextending um, obviously doesn't serve us as, as well either. I mean, this is going to sound incredibly um, sort of not really specific enough, I don't think, Dan, but 
I think the tone of these engagements is really important. And tone is one of the things that's difficult to describe scientifically. But I think a rigorous, but dare I use the word kindly tone, seems to be most effective because there's an intentionality behind things if you do them rigorously and people understand the why. So I think getting people to go on a workshop without understanding the purpose, the arm folder is going to say that just seems a waste of time to me. But also equally under meeting people where they're at, because I think that the real skill of leadership is being able to understand where people are at. And one it comes back to what you're saying is that you've got to see people as people, you know, what is the person, um, what's going on for them. So I think there are ways to do it. Um, probably doesn't sound very precise enough, but I would say rigorous but kind is probably how I would summarize a tone, a tonality of, of bringing everybody in. When I was asking, I knew there wouldn't be a, a one sort of thing that you can always pull out and it works, but that if people are, yeah, I, th I think that first bit, like the idea of being rigorous, like let's not just do things because we've heard it on a podcast, you know, let's not just do things because we saw a blog article that said five ways to increase belonging. Let's be rigorous in how we go about this with our people, but do it in a kindly way. <laughs> you know, I think, yeah, it's, I think that's great advice, actually, for what it's worth. Okay, let's um, look at a little bit about, um, we've spoken about the research we've spoken about some of the principles let's let's see if we can get a little bit practical about the environments that we might set up or um you know the the, the way in which we use space or the way in which we might use time um because obviously they're typically finite the space we have or the time we have and i'm curious to know how people can be deliberate in the, in the way they set places up which can engender this sense of of um, belonging community and and you know as we've said there trust and bonding yeah well I think I, I mean first of all talking a little bit about space and place I think in all our research including my own experience by the way in SAB Miller is having places for people to come and eat together is one of the most effective ways of creating connection and I know unfortunately one of the first things that goes in organizations when there's any kind of financial pressures, the canteen. Um, and we we did a piece of work where we looked at an organization that was bringing together lots of different, they'd acquired, they'd grown through acquisition. And we actually went to the different sites um, and they'd all belonged to different organizations previously. But what really struck us is the site and organization that seemed to be most thriving, even as they'd been bought out, was the place where they had a canteen. They had playing fields, they had social opportunities for connection. And people at lunchtime were kind of playing a bit of football. Um, there were people uh, sort of eating together. And so there are ways of, um, of using space really smartly. And I know there are a lot of people who hate the idea of hot desking, and I don't think it's particularly effective either, because what it does is doesn't give you a place of your own. And there's something in the human psychology that really likes to just have a little place in which you can put up photos of your family or whatever it is. So I'm quite an encourager actually of people having a tiny space of their own. It doesn't need to be big at work. And then the other thing is incidental learning happens when people kind of bump into each other. Um, 
you know, how do you create that? You create that by having shared communal space. Um, and we've got examples from some organizations where they've done that brilliantly together. You know, they've had, you've, they've got a kind of shared coffee space where people are encouraged to go couches. So I think imagine creating a kind of version of home really in the workplace, but it doesn't need to be hugely expensive. This is not massive investment. These are just really ways of thinking about actually people like to come to get, come together and equally they like to go and do their tasks um, in a place that's hopefully a bit quieter and gives them time to think. I mean, it's the both and. I think when you're talking, I just jotted something down as you were um, as you were talking. Like one of the biggest, yeah, or certainly one of the most common things um, we hear when when like a prospective client comes to us, it's like something along the lines of, um, yeah, how do we get our work? How do we get out of working in silos? You know, how do we break those silos down? And it's only, to be honest, cur- well, I say only, it's certainly been augmented by reading the book. And, uh, yeah, it, it's really brought it to the front of my mind. It's like going, well, those silos are perfectly natural if we hold it, if we look at Dunbar's research. So yeah. it's quite normal that silos would, it's quite preferable from a, perhaps from a human point of view to have those silos, to have my people around me. How do we go? So, so t- two parts to the question, I guess, is one: Do we need to break those silos? And if so, is the idea of of doing the other stuff, so the other work related, uh, sorry, the the non work related stuff, so the game of football, the choir, eating together, um, going for walking check ins with a buddy who perhaps isn't in your immediate department, is that is that adequate to break silos or do we really need to be, you know, because a lot of people say, oh, we need to collaborate more on, on projects and this, that and the other. And I wonder if they actually get personally thinking, do we sometimes get over enamored with this idea of collaboration across loads of different um, departments and we miss the opportunities to actually just connect in a different way? Well, I think, I mean, you're touching on, once again, it's kind of both and because I think where we've seen very effective groups come together, cross-disciplinary groups come together, working on projects at speed, um, you know, the consultancies are very good at this. They bring people from different parts of the organization together, get them to focus on a project, and we know that works well. People under pressure with a very clear outcome. Um, and of course, the consultancies have cracked the code of the rituals when people come in. So what do we do? You know, get people onto the same page super quickly. Um, they're actually fantastic at that. So and Agile does that brilliantly as well, cross-disciplinary teams. So we know that that works and that does create a bond and a connection. And of course, those sort of teams, the multidisciplinary teams, end up being much more creative and innovative than just a team made up of of only the marketers, for example. Um, I've just come across a piece of research, which I absolutely loved, which suggests that bringing a group of people together who might be highly individualistic, if you have one connector, the connector actually really makes the difference in terms of people sharing ideas 
And that was a, a piece of work in the Journal of Accountancy. I think they felt that, yeah, you know, those technical teams just weren't getting, weren't innovative enough. So there's that piece, Dan. And um, yeah, I think those, there are examples, I think, where that code has been cracked. And I think, yeah, the, the, the consultancies do that very well. I mean, talking about the big four and McKinsey and so on. And then the flip side of that is, as you say, it's diverse teams are much better at being um, at being problem solvers, but it's more difficult. So you have to factor in the other stuff first, the connection, the bonding, that has to be factored in as part of the understanding that in order to deliver well, we need to break our natural tendency for homophily. And homophily is, you know, really birds of a feather effect. I mean, yeah. a group of accountants together, if you want a technical task done, they're going to do it at speed. You know, don't introduce somebody from, I don't know, HR kind of slightly muddies the water if you want a technical task done, asking kind of the wrong questions. So I think there's horses for courses. And I think our book has um, given lots of different ideas on how to be way more productive in thinking about team design. But the idea of a connector, I think, is important. And the idea of doing the upfront work first, that is the work of teams, but it's often yeah. not done. The scientific truth of the matter is that we are at our best in small groups. And if people can feel a sense of connection and belonging in a small group, that but it has a thread of connection to, and belonging to the bigger group, I think that's ideal. But we are designed to be, and we are designed to thrive in small groups. Um, and in our book, we've put together a thrive model, which are the conditions for thriving. Um, and I think if we can tick, you know, if each of those elements are in place, we know from our experience that you will get the best out of people. You'll get the well-being and mental health benefits. We're in a mental health crisis. So this is important stuff, actually. This is critical stuff. Mm. Um, we need to do this for our young people. They're, all, they're experiencing a world in which we have no real understanding because it's not the world that we had. So there are these six elements of thriving that work, and that, but it needs to be done deliberately. This is not, it cannot be left up to chance. Because our natural default is to, especially in organizations, is to focus on the technical. And I think that is what we're disrupting. We're saying, do that at your own risk, because if that's not going to be the kind of collective thriving that we need. So just for the benefit of um, people listening, so that, that Thrive model is made up of six elements. So the values, belonging, connection purpose culture and learning yes and you've got a, yeah it, it's a um a great model with lots of um specifics i guess that um people can get their head around i don't want to tell people more than that because i want everyone to go and buy the book <laughs> so where is the best place for people to to get the book um is it available everywhere or well, bookstores kindle you tell me it's just come up out on paperback. So it was on in hardcover for a year, but about a week ago, it's come out in paperback. We've got a website with lots of tools um, and opportunities for people to kind of explore a bit more. It's called the socialbrainbook.com. Um, and all of the uh, places that you can buy the book are available there. 
We continuously update with new materials. New research is always coming out connected to the social brain. Um, we offer kind of ideas around how to design social strategies. Um, we think they need to be as important as marketing and HR strategies um, or finance strategies. It is the future of, of organizational thriving. Um, so all of that can be found on the socialbrainbook.com. And yeah, I would encourage everyone to, to read our book. Thank you so much, Dan. If, if people want to connect with you, is there any um, other web links or LinkedIn type spots that you occupy or is it just the book website? Well, we have another website, which is our business. It's a consultancy business. We operate um, in, we do leadership development and um, culture change work. And that is thompsonharrison.com. Well, we'll make sure that the links to both the, the book website and Thompson Harrison is in the show notes. Um, all that's left to say is thank you very much for coming on, Sam. I had a real blast there. There's been lots of somewhat new ideas popping off in my head as courtesy of this conversation. So I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you uh, today. Well, thank you very much, Dan. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So as I mentioned, the links to the book and to find out more about Samantha's work are all in the show notes. As we always say, if you found that conversation worthwhile, then there's a fair chance that someone you know would also find it worthwhile. So please feel free to share this as far and as wide as you can in your WhatsApp groups, in social media, or just word of mouth, however you want to go about it. Um, it's a little thing to do, but it makes quite a big difference for us. So does rating the podcast and leaving a review for the podcast wherever you're listening. And of course, please make sure that if you haven't done already, you subscribe to the podcast. Now, if you're interested in learning more about the work we do here at Cut Through, or perhaps you would like to suggest a guest for an upcoming episode, or perhaps you've got a question that you'd like us to tackle in one of our Q&A episodes, then all you need to do is just head over to Habits of Leadership com and click on the podcast page but until our next episode thank you so much for listening take care take it easy